David Hollander's career as a television creator, showrunner, screenwriter, producer, and director has included Golden Globe-winning drama Ray Donovan, The Guardian, Heartland, and The Cleaner. As a writer, he began his career as a playwright in the early 1990s with productions in New York and Los Angeles. In 1994, Hollander turned to screenwriting, working for Paramount Pictures and other major studios. Working in television since 2000, he has written over 100 credited episodes and directed over a dozen episodes. His film credits include directing the feature film Personal Effects, starring Michelle Pfeiffer, Kathy Bates, and Ashton Kutcher. A talented musician, he discussed with Mia the emotional core of his writing and how music informs his stories. He is currently adapting the Mountain Goats album Tallahassee for film and continuing his work on Ray Donovan and other projects for Showtime. David Hollander, welcome to the creative process. Thank you. So, your beginnings as a writer, mm -hmm. you're a showrunner, mm -hmm. um, a screenwriter, a, a director, producer, but you came up through poetry. I started writing poetry. I'm not sure if I, if I came up through it. I was, I was um, the first things I wrote were poems. And I didn't know anything about poetry. I think that um, I loved music, and I loved, um, uh, particularly when I was a boy, I loved Elton John. Mm -hmm. So at that point, Bernie Taupin was writing all of his, his lyrics, and I thought they were beautiful, and I would read um, the lyric sheets on the records. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I thought poetry was. Yeah. Um, I hadn't, I'd never really cracked a book of poet poems. And so when I first started to write, it was really just these sort of emotional ideas um, that I thought were poems. Right, and then you moved to playwriting. Right. Um, the origins of those different modes of writing, mm -hmm. as you said, you begin with a feeling, um, poetry, but is it more structured? If we could talk about your early plays. Sure. Yes. I love that. That would be nice to talk about them. Um, when I first... Well, first to be... To be clearer about my, my process is that I never intended to be a writer. I, um, that was not my goal. I didn't think I was a writer. I, I wanted to be an actor initially, and then I really wanted to be a director, just a stage director. Not just, but that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to, to direct theater. And so the writing I did up until the time I was in my early 20s was either songwriting or very florid, badly written short stories. I was not great at the narrative. I, like I read some of them. Hey, <laughs> um, They're very descriptive, like a screenplay. That yes. I said, yes. And then um, it was an accident, really. Everything I'd written was sort of hidden away in secret. And I also wrote, I kept journals. The journals were, um, I, I probably journaled every day, and I still do. I mean, I still I love to journal, and that was. Um, and they had sort of the core of lots of ideas that I was grappling with as journals. But um, we had started a theater company in Seattle, and um, we needed a play, mm. quite simply. Mm. And I had studied with in college with Frank Galati, who was a wonderful, um, incredible teacher. And we were really learning about adaptation of, of, of story of narrative mm. and adapting short stories and nonfiction. And um, so when I first was cutting my teeth. The way I think I learned to write was by taking great works mm -hmm. and adapting them for the stage. 
What um, did you learn from that process? Which did you choose? And wow, everything. You, everything. Yes. What the first thing that, that I learned from that process was how to identify, at least in my mm-hmm. opinion, what the feeling of the story was. What what, it, what the story was really trying to say emotionally, not so much in a, in a literary form, but like, what does it feel like? Mm-hmm to read the story and how does that feeling present itself as a possibility when you stage it in another with a third dimension and sound and, and all the things that come from putting things up in front of people. And Frank was incredibly generous. He was someone who really, um, if he saw you had a, a, if he saw you were even making an effort, he encouraged you. But when he saw you really were connected to something, he was just a champion of things. So um, I had written an adaptation I'd written two adaptations while I was at Northwestern. One was, uh, I wrote a one-man show based on Joe Warden's life. Oh. Uh, and I performed it. Right. And that helped me sort of fashion a monologue, like sort of the writing of a monologue. I was an hour-long monologue. And then I wrote an adaptation of a Stuart Dybeck short story called Blight uh, as a play. Both for, one for another class and one for Frank. Um, and that little adaptation that I'd done for Frank my senior year in college became the first play that I wrote, which is really Stuart Dybeck's work as interpreted by me. Yes, and so, but so much of, it depends on the short story writer, but mm-hmm. um, so much of what works in a short story, it's not necessarily, you know, three act, and we were no. talking about this before, the, um, the inner voice, and right. so... How do you approach translating into things that people will say? That's a great question. Um, the things that people say in story, in, in, in fiction, yeah. are very. It's interesting as I've grappled with that a lot as, a, as both an ad- adapter of, of, of for the theater and for film, and taking I've adapted a lot of books over the years and, and trying to figure out what it is that is the. There has to be a driving intention in one for a character in order to make to write them dramatically. You cannot write a static character. You cannot write a, a character so stuck in their intellect that they're not doing anything, right? That's just not the nature of, of, of narrative or of dramatic writing. And so I think the simple reduction is to ask the characters what do they want and how can you put them in action and then stand them up and make them, you know, put them in scenes and... Um, and that's a really hard thing to, to talk about other than to sort of sit with those stories until they start to come alive a little bit. And then, you know, my first um, first job writing for, for film was for Scott Rudin, and he had a really great way of looking at the literature. He would say bad books make great movies, you know. And that's true because like the, the, ex- the exterior uh, way people write that aren't really going deep into their fiction writing, going deep into their hearts, it's, they write plot, and plot is much more easily accessible mm-hmm. in, in dramatic writing. Um, the art of adapting a short story is also, in a way, finding the sort of the the narrative voice, the way who's narrating it and who's presenting the story. Mm-hmm. Did you see Oklahoma? Um, I have seen, but I haven't seen it on stage. The latest? It. No, I haven't. Okay. Um, there's a there's a at, there's a, a production of Oklahoma playing on Broadway right now that is just astonishing, and it's uh, adapted and directed by another Northwestern student who is another student of Frank's, and you can see a lot of what Frank taught on display in that production. Um, 
part of it was to deconstruct the story enough so you could find a visual way to reconstruct it. Mm-hmm. What was the feeling? What did you want to see? What were the visual elements of it? Uh, you know, and there's no real math. It was just mm-hmm. figuring out what you saw and how you wanted to present it. And, and we, we were taught early on to use narrators, just for say, the, the voice of mm-hmm. the piece will be narrated. The story of it behind it will be played. It could be dance. It could be a dumb show. It could be scene work. Um, and so, and you were writing even then with actors in mind. Well, with yourself in mind and with your troupe in mind. Yes. Um, so you knew their voice very well. But that has not always been the case when you were working on screenplays where you could hear, where you would know how it would be interpreted. Never know when you're writing for television and for film. You never know who's going to interpret it. Yeah, you have you can guess, mm-hmm. you can try, uh, you can work with actors, and they often fall out. Mm-hmm. You know, the next piece, one, the, one of the next pieces I'm doing, I wrote for Jared Leto. Mm-hmm. So I've written a piece for Jared, right? He's right. the person I'm imagining in the role, and it's all written really for him. Yes, because in truth, you write it, and then mm-hmm. if it's for Jared Leto and Jared doesn't do it, somebody else does. Yes. For instance, like you're talking about The Guardian, I didn't write The Guardian for Simon Baker. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I initially wrote it for Charlie Sheen. Oh, because you'd, worked, you'd written a screenplay rated X. Rated X that Charlie had been in. Yeah. So I was imagining Charlie in that role and was really wanting him to play that role. Interesting. Right? <laughs> that seems like a strange choice. You know, Wasn't it? Well, here, here were the people that I wanted for The Guardian. Charlie Sheen. And at that time, Charlie was, you know... In, in his prime, he was an astonishing actor. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about Charlie Sheen in Platoon or Charlie Sheen in his yes. early work, he was really, a, before his demons sort of got hold of him, he was, mm-hmm. um, he still is an excellent actor, but he's, he's um, so initially it was Charlie, and then I wanted um, Robert Downey Jr. All right. And then the third person I offered it to was Leo Schreiber. Oh, okay. So you you've you've collaborated with him before then? I've never collaborated with him. I just offered, I just offered right. him the piece, uh, and then after that came Simon Baker. Right. And the f- pilot episode was a very uh, was written for a character that had a lot of verbal dexterity, spoke a lot. He was clever, right. and here came Simon, mm-hmm. and Simon was not that actor. Mm-hmm. He wasn't meant to be. He's you know he has a thick Australian accent, first and foremost that he struggled mm-hmm. with. And he wasn't um, a trained actor. He was a, a young, really talented person, but he was not somebody who was going to deliver speeches, right? The minute I cast him, I sat down and we read the whole script to each other and I just peeled all the language away. Yes. And it worked for Simon because that became a character that didn't speak mm-hmm. very much and a character who, uh, who understood. It's interesting, sometimes you write all that language Mm-hmm. And it's just a way to inform your actor mm-hmm. what they should, what they're thinking, yes, but they don't they say it anymore. And suddenly, there's something magical about that and, and mis- mysterious. So you had shared your script. So I feel uh, um, last season of mm-hmm. Radon, and I want to skip ahead because I like this whole um, evolution of you as a writer, as a director. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a privilege to be able to see that and how. I think you hesitated about using the word minimal, but the use of silence. Mm-hmm. And then I did wonder how, I guess you're communicating it just verbally, but I, I thought um, 
you, you sometimes put that in a parenthetical. Right. I thought that that could be useful in dialogue if you say what they should think at the end of the sentence yeah. when they don't complete. Do you do that? I do sometimes. Um, less and less mm -hmm. because I feel that sometimes the actor feels insulted in a way by if you yes. give them their subtext. Mm -hmm. A great actor doesn't want that. When I first started to write, my parentheticals were quite long. This is mm -hmm. what you're thinking. This is what you would say even if I gave you the text. <laughs> now they're pretty, pretty much like, you know, there's a word or maybe an idea. There was a, some early screen. There was uh, Nick Kazan um, writes like this. He's a, he's a very interesting screenwriter. You know his father's, but like he writes enormous parentheticals. Mm -hmm. So this is what they're thinking, and this is how they actually what they actually say. And I think I was informed by reading a few of his screenplays early on and looking at that method, mm -hmm. saying over here, this is your subtext, and here is your text. But I don't do that, because mm -hmm. the actors don't want it. Yes, I see. And when you're working with them longer, they become... They, 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 be, they become their own narrative. They supply mm -hmm. their own subtext in a way. So I, it surprised me before, because you had spoken about finding writing hard or that being one of the more difficult aspects mm -hmm. of your um, job, which is a showrunner, which I can't even imagine all the different activities that it entails, and that directing, how would you describe that, you know, in terms of ease? Um, I find directing to be a relief. Maybe mm -hmm. that's the way to look at it. Um, I, writing is very hard for me. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the, the, what I love about directing is that I'm not writing. So there's mm -hmm. that, right? I'm doing a different thing. Mm -hmm. But even the, this, the difference between realizing a script and writing a script, it's profound. It's a, mm -hmm. worlds apart, right? It's, it's, um, when you're directing, you're, just, you're creating environments for everyone to work, and you're there to kind of capture and respond. You, you put an idea out. All these people interpret it. You stand back. You wait for the interpretation to gel. You step back in. You put the interpretation up again. You make a decision. Um, I love that. I love that process. And and technically, putting the camera on or that's not hard for me. What's the hard part is to make it true. So how? I know it will depend on the scene. Mm -hmm. um, do you like to do many takes or? It's not so much about takes. I'll do as many as you need, as, as, as I feel is needed for the, for the scene to work. Um, I like to rehearse, and I like to feel like the actors are confident. I'm not of the mind that you do 50 takes. A lot of great directors do 50 takes. I don't, because I feel like the story, um, it's there no matter what. Mm -hmm. And if I keep pushing and pushing and pushing for some thing to happen that either, that, God forbid, I want that thing to happen, that's never going to happen. I, I just need to be surprised, and have I been surprised enough? I don't think there's any actor that's going to respond to me telling them, this is what I'm looking for, just keep doing it until I can mm -hmm. get it. You don't want to torture them to death, no? No, and I'm maybe too easily, but I'm pleased by what I see mm -hmm. most of the time. I'm working with a great actor. It's almost more like I'm so pleased that I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to move on. Oh, so then you do have that opportunity, because you're, are you editing each... Oh, that's, a, that's an amazing way to work. Right. So you're writing 
many. Last season, I think, was it five episodes or more? That, probably. Well, I mean, the whole story on the showrunner's job is, you know, and this is just the nature of the beast. The showrunner's job is to write it all, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, with your staff, with your yes. writers. But at the end of the day, every scene goes through your typewriter, no matter whose name is on the script. Every scene, every... And it depends on the, on the group of people you have writing with you as to how much freedom you give your writers. Mm-hmm. You know, last year, uh, the staff that I had, I'd been with a long time. Mm-hmm. So, so many of them, two of them in particular, were given a lot of freedom. This year, I have an entirely new staff. Right? Why did you decide that? Or what happened? <laughs> well, what happened is that um, Chad Feehan got a job running a show. Uh-huh. Mickey Johnson got a, show, a job on a show she really wanted to go do. Uh, Sean Connolly moved on to another show, and those were my three writers. That was it. Okay. So I have an entirely new staff this year. And you've not worked on them previously? With them? None of them. Okay. So this year is different. I'm, I'm writing all of the scripts... Oh. Basically, because you have to, bring and then bringing the writers in to work with me after the scripts are are formed. Right. Um, different. It's a different style this year. Yes. And how do you visualize that? I can't imagine keeping that. You have you're keeping back from the the beginning of the show, keeping that. I guess twelve. This year is ten. Ten. All right. Last year was twelve. This year is right. ten. And I don't want to forget uh, when we were talking about your poetry, which mm-hmm. you. So it's interesting, you're discussing your forthcoming volume, um, and this is a sort of, you have a pseudonym, or this is another life for you as a writer. It's, um, it's a place where I can go that is free of, of, of um, you know, I think it was an early idea that I could write poems that were private and not feel like I needed to own them. I think it was something as a uh, someone who was born in the late '60s and, and grew up in the '70s and '80s when there was where there wasn't a whole lot of freedom to be different people. You know, I look at my kids today and they're they can be anyone they want. But if I wanted a voice, be able to take the voice of, uh, of a different gender mm-hmm. or a different sexuality or a different or whatever, I needed to go sort of put that into a, a place of almost anonymity. So I think that became a habit, if you will, the way I began to write poetry, is I wanted to take on all these different voices. And yet you're taking on different voices. You have very strong um, female characters mm-hmm. um, that really drive the narrative in many ways, even though you have very many strong um, male characters we're speaking about, Mary Donovan. But, uh, so you do write under a woman's name that we won't reveal. But I, I, I was interested in the subject matter because it does also seem very filmic. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to have something unified. Like, mm-hmm. I like a uni- a uni- you know, an idea of unification. And so what I'm working on right now is very much influenced by this new experience of living in New York and by the, the kind of the voyeurism mm-hmm. New Yorkers, I think, experience, certainly that I experience of being in New York. You're, you're always in seeing and around other people and imagining their lives and in close quarters, whether you're jammed into a subway or walking across a bridge or wherever we are, we're, we're, we're in this kind of sense of strangers who become immediately, um, for a moment, very much a part of our lives and then, and then gone. Yes. And so I wanted to find a way to write about that 
in New York, and I just began to realize that I could pick elevators in buildings mm. um, and literally go to buildings and ride the elevators. Were you looking at people in elevators? I wasn't looking. There was a time that the cell phones have destroyed the ability to look at anybody in an elevator. Everyone just immediately does this. So there's nothing... But do they look? Of course, oh, of course I look at them. Nature, yes. no, I look at them all the time. What's <laughs> interesting? <laughs> yes. What's interesting now is that everyone does this, mm. and so what happens is they all uh, they're they're having an experience of hoping the outside world will take them away from the intimacy of being cramped with other people that they don't know. Right? Mm. Before there was never any of that. It was you had to share the space. Right. I remember this is happening even in France, although it's less so because they're still obsessed with books there, or at least the people not I know. But everyone was reading books. It's less so now, but it's right. not as much as in America. Right. right. Even this, the experience of being with strangers has been taken away because of this device that makes mm-hmm. strangers now go into a place where they don't even... You can't even cast a glance. You can't have a moment. You can't... So I think I'm choosing to write about people in their absence mm. now. Um, the idea being is that I ride elevators and I get a feeling who is just here. What do I smell? What do I feel? Mm. Is it a perfume or is it a pizza or is it a dog or is it a... The, the, you can feel people, can't you? Yes. Just, as, yeah. just after they've left. But it's interesting that you you find um, New York voyeuristic and we're in your apartment now in Williamsburg and I guess it's a lot of windows and looking out but you found it's less so in Los Angeles where you now spend part of your time Los Angeles is a car culture and it's um, because you you have separation and you have space Mm -hmm. it's not the same type of uh, intimacy with other people Mm -hmm. right and I think there's something really powerful about the intimacy of of when you're in New York crammed with with other people and being so close to them I think it it creates an immediate um need to feel them, understand them a little bit. Um, in New York, you, just, you know, you're so so close up, and in Los Angeles, you're driving by them alone in your car. Mm-hmm. It's so quiet. It's interesting because I compare it to Paris. Of course, we are very close to each other as well, but um, there is very much a sense of the public face. But then I find there are many opportunities for intimacies which are profound. So we're speaking about the different places that you've lived, and you were born in Pittsburgh. Yes. Um, and imaginatively, imaginatively, you were formed there, but also um, to your frequent summer trips to um, New York to mm-hmm. to Harlem with your grandparents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, my upbringing was Pittsburgh, predominantly. Um, my grand my grandparents when I was a boy had moved to Fort Lee. Mm-hmm. They were, they, my, they had come via the tenement buildings up to Harlem when it was Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, big family, a working class family. Um, and so I spent a lot of time in New York, particularly with my grandmother who loved the Yiddish theater and loved performance of all dance and music. And, and, uh, and she was the person who really, uh, in a way introduced me to this idea that the artists were valuable and needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and she loved to go to the theater and mm-hmm. she loved to read books and listen to music and find dance and she would 
initially she would take me to see plays, and then after a while I would just go. Mm-hmm. You know, my grandfather would bring me into the city and leave me for the day, and I could wander and go to a play. And so New York was a big part of the the idea that art could be something one did. Mm-hmm. There was theater in Pittsburgh, and I used to go to the theater there as well. It was very different, but it was still something I loved. I hear um, music is strong in Pittsburgh. The music in Pittsburgh was wonderful. There was a Pittsburgh's black culture is mm-hmm. extraordinarily interesting, mm-hmm. and really a, after Harlem, speaking of. The, the, the Hill District of Pittsburgh is one of the great cultural uh, African-American centers of, of, of the nation and had some of the most empowerful, powerful times. You know, Harlem was huge, and so was Pittsburgh. You know, great jazz, great writers, poets, August Wilson, you name it. There was, it was going on, and, and particularly in jazz and, 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 uh, when I was growing up. So there was that, that, that music was, was a big part of what was surrounding me, although it wasn't what I loved. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, and this um, awareness of class as you're going through different, you're passing through a, a, as a visitor different cultures. Mm-hmm. You know, the contrast is something that has uh, appeared uh, as a thread throughout your work. Very much so. Yeah, yeah, class, and I think what I was exposed to early on was um, my father had success unlike his relatives mm. you know he came from a poor family his, he was really the first of that group to go to college the first of this group to sort of succeed and we had a very middle class life mm. um, growing up and we, we didn't want for anything really um, it was not by any means wealthy but it was certainly um, different than what he had grown up with mm. and different from the family the extended family from which I came so my experience was I thought I was very rich, mm-hmm. right? And, well, and you're grateful. You would yeah, take I was very. I thought I had more than anybody. Really, mm-hmm. it was with the world in which I lived. My father's family did not have very much at all. Um, and then I ended up going to high school in the wealthiest community in the city, and um, suddenly I, I saw what real wealth was—like extraordinary wealth. Um, which had nothing to do with the way that I was raised. And, um, and I found myself having a given day or weekend where I would be with a working class, my, my working class family, my middle class family of origin, and then my friends who were the, you know, who would trickle down from the Fricks and the Carnegies and the mm-hmm. Olivers and all that Pittsburgh wealth. And they lived in mansions and they, they had you know, horses and, and beautiful cars and, you know, um, in a tradition, a culture of wealth mm-hmm. that I'd never seen before. And that's where a lot of my early writing started to kind of come out of the first things that I began to write about in the sense of, of particularly for, for film and for television, where um, that kind of Pittsburgh story between the upstairs downstairs. My first, the first movie I ever wrote was uh, the story of, of a boy who was the son of a basically a, a servant who believed he was switched at birth with uh, the the person who's you know with a, with a kid that rich family and was obsessed with this. And it was really the first piece of cinema I'd ever written was was for this long sixty year look at the history of Pittsburgh with these two men. Mm-hmm. One who believed had taken his life from him, one who was poor, one who was rich, and 
in looking and refracting the city through these two points of view. Um, the Guardian was a lot of that idea too, which was what happens when a wealthier person, a wealthy kid with wealthy kid problems, gets thrown into the the mire of the working class um, and, and the, the issues of the poor and the issues of broken families and things that you know his his problems were those of uh, still pain, wealth, and the death of a mother, and addiction, and complicated psychological states. But he didn't want, he had money. He didn't want for anything in, in that sense. Um, and the Guardian was really throwing him into a world that he would never have experienced of what the city really was and what the city really had to offer. And, and, uh, and I still write about that a lot, but that's, that's sort of... Um, you know, how New York or, or figured in that was really just... New York was just a kind of a overwhelming and incredible place to be as a kid. Yeah, and, and culturally and, and in terms of the, the variety of people and, mm-hmm. as you say, voyeurism. But we should say of The Guardian, um, I think it also drew on... Your father was a lawyer mm-hmm. and also your brother um, is in this, has this... founded this organization, right. Kids right. Voice, right. which is uh, advocating for the kind of... right. My father um, became a lawyer, and it was uh, he was, success- he was a, a successful lawyer. He began um, initially as a as basically uh, doing plaintiffs' work for malpractice and the unions and injury and workplace injuries. And but he was also very involved with the ACLU, and so there's a very sort of interesting combination of of service work in a, in a way of being a kind of lawyer who wanted to be of service and helpful. My brother became a lawyer, and um, initially came home to work with my father. Mm-hmm. And um, this was not long, you know, this was at a time when, when I think he was seeking a place to, to figure out who he was and he wanted to please my father, he wanted to be close to my father, he wanted to be that kind of lawyer, but it just didn't work for him. Mm-hmm. So uh, he went off and began working as a child advocate. Um, so I watched that. I watched my brother and father try to work together and it wasn't combustible, it wasn't angry, it just didn't work. It wasn't who my brother wanted to be. He went off to do the kind of law that he felt was important to him. And I had gone to visit him at his first job doing this in Denver. And he had taken me, he took me to a, a shelter for kids. And I was sitting in the basement, and he would see a kid every 10 minutes to go over their situation, right? And their, their case, and this, whether, whether they were in trouble, or whether their parents were in trouble, or whether placements were going to be. I just remember sitting with him and watching these kids parade through and just feeling how complex they were, how troubled they were, how much lying they were doing, how much manipulating they were doing, and how also at the same time you understood exactly why they were lying and why they were manipulating. And they have to grow up so quickly. Yeah, a very terrible situation and very painful situations. And so the guardians who clicked out of that, I, I, I was watching my brother find his way in that world mm-hmm. having left my my father's firm and then I was thinking of you know I kind of threw myself in the middle of it which was I was the the kid who was the troubled kid I was the kid who was you know um, in trouble often whether it was with alcohol drugs fighting the law whatever mm-hmm. so my my youth was much rougher and stranger than my brothers my brothers were very good 
he was a good student, he was a good kid, and I was the kid who was always in trouble. And I think I took the both of us and just kind of merged us into this this one character that became Nick Fallon that Simon played. But I believe I believe you because I believe that writers or artists are um, attracted to intensity. But at the same time, and I see how you flourish as a showrunner, which I understand has to be the most responsible person. Right. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what. Um, what, how, how the transformation took place? <laughs> um, the transformation took place for me. Um, I think. I think when I was allowed to do what I loved mm-hmm. exclusively was when my life changed. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't like school. I was not a good student. Um, I was smart, so I was a disappointment to everybody because I was considered extraordinarily smart but I was also let down because I didn't like school I didn't come to class why did it bore you? Um, in retrospect you know I think if I were if I were a child of now I would have been you know diagnosed with all sorts of learning disabilities no this is another thing you said before that you said that you and it's interesting that you write for characters who can who use silence but then there are other large characters who, who very verbal, but it surprised me because I find you very articulate, so I don't understand I've that. always been articulate, and it's, it's, it's something about school and my ability to focus or learn the way that I was being taught. I was not a good rote mm-hmm. reader, regurgitator, you know, and I didn't like to play the game, so... Um, like, I've watched my kids go through school, and they're all very different, and my middle child is just like I am, just hated school. Mm-hmm. Very smart, very articulate. He'll be very successful. He just didn't like school. It didn't work for him. Well, it, it, but that's one thing. I am I, very curious about ways that we can... Um, how do we modify our education models? Because they, they need... I mean, a lot of progress has been made. They right. do need to, to right. make room for people who have many talents, but mm-hmm. to actually give them... And that's that's a big question, and I, I, I don't know how, but I, I feel... Sometimes I feel like a more apprenticeship or these kind of things where people understand why they're learning something there's a problem I think think understanding the value of what you're being taught and what you're going and why exactly why you're doing it and what the value of being successful at it really is Mm -hmm. is it about pleasing a teacher pleasing Mm -hmm. your parent getting into a college none of that appealed to me I didn't want to please my teachers. I had zero interest in, like, shooting at a college. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, consequently, school and I were not a good match. Yes, because you were looking up to musicians, and you were... I I loved the theater, and I loved the music, and I I also was an athlete, and I loved playing sports. Mm -hmm. But music and theater and poetry and sports, those things matter to me. Mm -hmm. Chemistry, not at all. Yes. World history. I love to read, but I didn't love to be told what it was. Mm-hmm. Here's a fact mm-hmm. about world history. Bullshit. How do you know? Why can't we read this, this, and this? Well, and it's all come to light, hasn't it? Like yeah. the things we were being taught were generally useless anyway. Right. They weren't the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't necessarily uh, appropriately 
presented. They weren't rounded. They weren't. They never took in the perspective of the other. They weren't empathetic. Mm-hmm. I think that um, if I could be supportive and, and, and really kind to myself as a boy, I was a very empathetic person. Mm-hmm. I felt an incredible empathy toward everyone around me, almost too much so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also felt empathy for the people I was reading about. So it's hard for me to vilify a culture. Yes. Or to think like how wonderful, like the way that we were being taught in the 70s and 80s was, if you read those textbooks now, they're astonishing. Mm. You know, they're astonishing. They're full of lies. And I think I felt that even then. Okay, so there are a few threads I want to pull out of that. One, I know, or I believe you are also working on another, um, that is a historical narrative that draws in there. Mm-hmm. Um, your mother's life story, if I remember. Yes, yes the, one, of, one of the projects I'm doing next is very much based on um, Also, as we were talking about the Guardian and people who, children, who needed to become strong and uh, grow up quickly, become maybe even sometimes parents to their parents. Mm-hmm. I think of um, Liv Shriver's role in um, Ray Donovan. I think, I think Ray Donovan is a... Um, well, I think Liv Shriver is, and also the character Ray Donovan, extraordinarily uh, empathetic human being. Mm-hmm. Um, painfully so. So I think that Liv shares that, that, that capability of, of, of really feeling and understanding what's going on around him. And I think he's imbued that into this, into the character of Ray Donovan. Um, Ray, of course, is somebody who compulsively has to protect his family, you know, and feels that's that's you know not just what happened to him as a child, or but something about it now that becomes a way to avoid feeling anything. You know, avoiding painful emotions by action. I'll fix things and I'll take care of things versus I'll be present and feel them. What can we do to stop this from happening? We'll take an action, right? I think that's the allure of Ray Donovan, and I think it's interesting, and this is a non sequitur, but it's also where I think the longer we do the show, the more we're starting to poke at that idea and go, uh uh-uh. uh. What would happen if we started to push on that very thing? that makes Ray special and ask him to become aware of his feelings a little bit. What what, what, what would that look like? The Ray Donovan who um, had to sit with his feelings a little bit, had to name them, be aware of them. And as I understand, yes, he's gone through this... He has transformed many many things that have happened to him, interesting, dramatically. But what I... It seems like... He's repeating the life of his father in a different way. Yes, yeah, in many ways he is. And so how will, how will he confront that aspect? Not entirely, of course, right. everyone's life is unique. Right. So what does that look like? I think what we're asking ourselves at the show now is, is how to ask Ray why he doesn't know how he feels. Can we ask him to be interested in his own feelings. He's really stunted. He's a very stunted character. Right? He doesn't have a relationship to his feelings. And, and um, this year, the grand experiment is to ask ourselves and the character what would happen if he had to feel some of these things a little bit more. So that we are doing a lot with that, you know, with, with 
with Alan Alda's character, and we are doing a lot of, of, of attempting to put him in positions that are less violent, um, less aggressive, and more um, thoughtful. Mm. It's a challenge. I don't, it's funny because I didn't think of him as not being in touch with his feelings, uh, but some people feel that showing their feelings is a luxury. Mm -hmm. And what I've observed, I'm sure you've observed, people who defend their feelings, not always, because some people can be so damaged they're numb, but people who defend their feelings quite fiercely or people who've experienced, say, war, that kind of tragedy after tragedy, often have the deepest feelings. Because then he goes... I don't want to say goes through his emotions because, but sometimes in his relationship with his children, I thought maybe he was more demonstrative than mm-hmm. I expected mm-hmm. of someone from that background because I've, I've known some people like sure, this. Sure. Um, sure, I lived in Ireland for many years and it's not an unknown personality type. Right, right. <laughs> so I think. Uh, yeah, sometimes I felt, yeah, he was making up for it with, with, with them, and that is interesting. It's, it's interesting to hear you say that, because it definitely, I can't put my finger on it exactly, but there's a phenomenon, there's something interesting about living with a character so long. Yes. That the assumptions we make as artists about the character and the creation and the upkeep of the character may not be what we're doing anymore. Like, literally, it's, it's an interesting... Are sort of about our view of something that may not be what the audience even feels anymore. But I do think that the attraction, from my point of view, to the character of um, Ray is the strength, mm-hmm. um, the, the resolution of things, with all that complicated silence. So the feelings are interesting. I like the conversation with Emma. 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 Because it doesn't feel quite like a doctor. Right. So why should I be telling you about your story? But that oh, is, I was curious about. Right? Yeah. And and yes, so it's another. It's a way we could speak about the father figures, mother figures have featured mm-hmm. often. That is, uh, and why you talk about that? What? Why he is looking for these fathers and mother figures? I think I think the the idea around the character is that. You know, when in the absence of, of, a, of a father that he felt loved him and protected him, he sought um, men to replace that. And in the seeking of that was made himself vulnerable to abuse, sexually abuse, emotionally abuse. Um, it, you know, the vulnerability of a boy looking for a father in the absence of a father is, uh, particularly in the culture of you know the Catholic Church and. and that era put him in a position where he was, you know, both abused and also confused by his abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really complicated mental state to live in the rest of your life because the attraction to the trauma, to reliving the trauma, is powerful. I think anyone who's been traumatized, I think, has this bizarre desire to replay the trauma as much as to leave the trauma behind. It's a kind of this, you know... Until that can make sense. Right. So I think that that his character is very much attracted to men who will tell him that they love him, that he's special. And that's very much the way uh, a 
someone who would abuse him would groom him, mm -hmm. right? So he's he's definitely um, still, even at this age that we're writing him now, compelled to that type of idea of having an older man sort of telling me special and that he's good. Um, what we're playing with this year is to see what happens if the person he's attracted to telling him that is not some, is someone who means him no harm but actually means him help. Mm -hmm. We've never done that before. You know, given him an, an environment where perhaps the person, the man that he wants to uh, lead him in, the man he might want to impress is actually a man who actually wishes for him to be healed mm -hmm. or to move on. Yes, and what it takes for him to trust. So trust is hard for right. for many people. Sure. Um, what makes him cry? Can he cry? Oh, he cries often. That character cries often. Um, he's he's easily moved. Mm. You know, he's moved by his daughter. He's moved by um, human frailty. Mm. Um, he's moved by the love of his, you know, wife and his brothers. Mm. He's, uh, he's unusual, you know, I think he, he loves deeply, and, and when that love is challenged, it does crack him pretty easily. I think part of what we're learning about in writing him is that he's also a, uh, it's almost like we're looking at his quote-unquote addictions, or his, the way he acts out and trying to say, well, what is that, and why do you do it? The drinking, the fighting, the fucking, the, the things that he does that are sort of self-abuse. Because he does have a kind of a, a need to take and take when when, it, when he feels too much to lash out in the other direction mm -hmm. so but he's easily moved to tears I mean every season now I've seen it but it's a t I mean it's a tough man here you know right. what I mean so I never it doesn't feel like a you know as you say shrug it off you he know, cries out of anger too yes. a lot of his tears come from deep frustration and deep anger it's frustrating watching him is going back to he must see that he is, shares traits with his father and has actually acted in ways that his father acted or quite Absolutely. similar. Yes. But in terms of, was it difficult to write um, Abby's departure? There, on so many levels. It was difficult narratively. It was difficult for me in the sense of memory. It was difficult literally in the core of our group because Paula is such an incredibly important member of our troupe and incredible human being and such enormous talent and and it was difficult because narratively it was doing several things some of them were important to the inside of the story and some of them were about moving that story from Los Angeles to New York City oh yes there was a there was a construct about it so it was a very complicated thing to write. Probably the, the you know, I say this often and, and I don't mean it to be glib, it was by far the hardest thing I've ever had to do creatively was to write that year. And not because of my own history. It was, a lot of it had to do with because of... Mm -hmm. um, uh, not because of my own mother or because of other things in my life. It was more about, frankly, about um, disrupting the family of Ray Donovan, mm -hmm. the, literally not the characters, but the people, the crew, Paula, that became part of the drama of the writing. Right. Because we were losing, we were moving. Yeah. We knew we were moving. Mm -hmm. 
we were saying goodbye to our crew, we were saying goodbye to some of our cast, we were coming to this city, a place that we've been in L.A. for so long. Um, and that year stood for all of that. Yes. So um, I look at the year five process, I, I think that was the hardest thing I've ever done. My name is Allison Bevany. I'm a graduate student at Northwestern University, and I'm in the MFA in Writing for Screen and Stage program. I ultimately hope to write for television, which is why I am so excited to be the Associate Interviews producer for this episode of The Creative Process, which, as you know, is a conversation between Mia Funk and David Hollander. As I've been listening, I've been hearing all about what David's done creatively, from writing for the stage, writing poetry, composing music, writing for television, directing television, writing film, being a showrunner. I'm one, very inspired because I also hope to explore many avenues creatively, but I'm also very struck by how he's always carried this idea of finding the emotional core of the story you're trying to tell and having all the other elements of your storytelling point to that emotional core. He initially talks about this in describing uh, his origins uh, as a storyteller. He talks about his time at Northwestern, studying the adapting of stories from page to stage, studying under Frank Galati, And he tells us how he began to understand this idea of identifying the emotional feeling of your story and determining how you're going to allow your story to communicate that same feeling to your audience. Even today, in writing a new season of Ray Donovan, he's discussing how individual scenes, the season as a whole, even the series as a whole, and all the disparate elements, whether that's dialogue or character or plot, all point to this one emotional essence or core of the story. The feeling is trying to transmit kind of like how a musician writes a song, um, knowing or hoping that their listener is going to feel a specific emotion or experience a specific emotional journey over the course of that song. David even at one point describes the musicality of a series of television, of a piece of narrative. And this is just very inspiring to me in my own writing and particularly in one of my classes. I, in this class, have had to come up with a particular concept for a television series and pitch it to my classmates. To do this, I have to attack many different elements of the series. I need to construct my characters, determine the season trajectory, create an episode-by-episode breakdown, um, explore the intellectual underpinnings of my show concept, and all these elements individually can be very overwhelming. I could spend hours uh, trying to decide if a character's name is right, or if a plot point should go X-way or Z-way, or... um, delve into an essay of all the different intellectual ideas that might exist within the concept of my show. And while all of these questions do have value in their own right, I've really been trying to draw upon David's idea that I'm telling a story that's asking a certain question that has a certain feeling behind it, or rather has a certain feeling I'm hoping my audience will experience and explore alongside my characters. And this has really allowed me to see um, these different elements as instruments that are constructing the symphony of my series, so to speak. David even describes dialogue as an instrument that is allowing the scene to communicate a certain emotion or dramatic beat. And I'm trying to feel that way now too, trying to construct my series and my own writing in general around this idea of of a larger idea, of a larger emotional truth in my writing. Another aspect of this conversation that really struck me is David's emphasis on how we as creators need to be open to collaboration at every level and every step of the way. Specifically, he says we need to be open to listening because there are so many different parts of the creative process, whether that's when you're making a television show or something else. He talks about how it's not just his vision or his work that's becoming a part of the creation, but everyone's work and effort along the way, even if he has the first and the last word as showrunner. 
this idea of a TV series being something that's coming from everyone, from the crew to the actors to the creator to the writers to the director and anybody else who might be involved, is something that actually really attracted me to television when I knew I wanted to write for a living. I love this idea of everyone's voices, everyone's work becoming a part of the whole and defining the series or, or the story that so many others are then going to watch and also bring their own experience to as viewers. Hearing David say this on the one hand is super affirming because it's reminding me that what attracted me to television is very true of the medium. But on the other hand, it's a challenge. And it's specifically a challenge because right now in my classes, I'm realizing what the reality of that is. It means I have to go into class. I have to read my writing, showcase the bad, showcase the good, unearth the personal elements in that writing that I'm bringing to the writing every day and taking other suggestions, whether I initially agree with them or not, grappling with them in some way. And on some level, this is a scary thing to do because there's vulnerability there. You're exposing yourself. There is a fear. And David actually addresses this. He says there are some writers who do hide their writing, who keep it under lock and key until the very last moment when it's perfect, or when there's no time for anyone to say, no, you can't do that, or why did you do that? David, though, says he'd rather not operate from that place of fear. And hearing that statement is challenging and inspiring because I know he's right, and that means I have to be ready to open myself up and open my writing up to others. It's very freeing, even if it's scary, because it reminds me that we create because we want to bring our ideas to others and have others contribute to and shape these ideas by interacting with them, by bringing their own ideas and experiences to it. It was really great to hear someone who was very much involved in the world I hope to one day be a part of remind me of that truth, of what might be the emotional core behind why we tell stories. If you're just joining us, we're talking with showrunner, director, and producer David Hollander. I was wondering about, as you are making your show, Way Donovan, how you can compress all these disparate storylines to include distinct voices and deep storylines within that sh- those short periods. Well, it's um, cursive structure, right? And, and story structure is something that I think is greatly ignored and should be ignored by the audience. The audience should never see my structure or the structure. When the process begins, my job is to put together many disparate stories that are thematically linked and emotionally linked, and that are all sort of inexorably moving toward a climax, that they're going to meet each other. That's the hardest part of my job, and the best part of my job, because what I get to do is start a story with a feeling and then structure it into many different... So you could pick any season. I mean, I've, I've run TV shows for the last 20 years, and you could pick any, any TV or any year of any show I've ever run and ask me where it came from. It came usually from one thing, one root thing, that then I could extrapolate. Like this year we talked about, like this year came from the idea of, the simple idea of, of he should have gotten help. That's the thematic. Look at every story this year when you watch the show, and the same thematic will ring true in every single disparate plot line. And yet you made yourself so invisible in that process that you don't really see it, or their complexity hides that. They're my job. The best part of my job is to give the, each story its own con- 
complex set of obstacles and, and complex set of, of, of sort of movements where my writing per se isn't the thing you see. I mean, I, pro- I think I pride myself most on in my work personally, and this is ego, but my dialogue, you, you, I don't need, you know, my dialogue is, in, is completely innocent, not assen- in, essential to the success of my work. I don't care about dialogue at all. So, by the very nature of my process, dialogue being the least important thing means that the only tool of a writer's ego in my form is what the characters are saying, because that's where you begin to say, well, I wrote that word, or the, the word, right? I don't give a fuck about that. I write the structure. And in writing the structure, I'm actually letting the actors act and letting the audience feel that. So I don't worry about a cleverly turned phrase. I worry about an importantly told story that thematically is going to come and emotionally is going to all coalesce to an important place. And what I get to do is go into the world and go, what matters to me this, at this point in time? What do I feel and how do I make that? How do I, how do I get that feeling across? And sometimes it works brilliantly and sometimes it works for shit. It's the total train wreck, but that's, that's how I go about it. Is it an organism, a show? Mm-hmm. Very much what so. architecture? You know, uh, a television show is a, is a massive undertaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 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 is, it has so many components that have to work together and, and, and harmonize and be in synergies. And in order to be successful, I believe, uh, as a, as a, in order to yield a story that's both good and successful for the audience, but also makeable, the job of my job and with many others is to create a, a foundation that everyone can share. That's just not only in the scripts, but in, in, the, in the climate of, of the way we make things and the expectations. The architecture of a story is, is it's everything television terms because we we only when you really break it down a season television is really measured in a number of scenes and a number of locations and time we have to make it right it's it's very specific you know we have you know 105 days to shoot 10 hours of television this year right that's what we got so each script has to be tell this whole story but also you have to be able to execute it within that frame it's a massive endeavor of math mathematically and, and so one element of the architecture of telling stories in, in, in television that you, as a showrunner and as a creator of TV you have to build something that is achievable no different than an architect would lay out the plans for building a, a skyscraper I'm just yeah. interested in this whole selection process how you selected the writers and you create that family mm-hmm. new season on the different the visual aspects mm-hmm. how you make sure that all marries together mm-hmm. yeah behind the scenes and then how you're choosing actors to work together and how when I first started running shows now almost 20 years ago um, I would answer this question differently and that I would I thought then that I had a lot to do with it oh <laughs> you know <laughs> 
humidity, you always say. Well, but it's true. And it's here's the thing. Yeah. The more I do this job, the more I realize that the biggest part of the job is to be vigilant mm-hmm. around everything. Be vigilant and, and, and be open to collaboration at every level. Yes. And that means being the first in and the last out and the person who is open to listening the most to all things coming in. That is not about people listening to me. I have, I've learned this job over the years. My, I get the first word and I get the last word, mm-hmm. right? The first word is the scripts, the last word is the cut. Mm-hmm. I write the scripts before we start to film. I do the cut long after we're done shooting. Mm-hmm. Everything in between, I don't need to control because I've given the first word and I get the last word. Everything in between then is about asking other people to do the very best work because they're the ones doing the work then, right? I mean, yes, I'm writing, and yes, I'm making decisions all day, and yes, those things are taxing and tiring and time-consuming. I understand what, what this job is. Any other human being doing this job, I have, I could explain better than myself. It's 100 hours a week, minimally, of, of this job. Mm. You live it it, 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 it takes over your life, it's what you do. That said, when you're surrounded by really talented people doing their very best work, all you have to do is give them... The scripts are really hard to write, no doubt, and the scripts mm-hmm. are fucking brutal to write. But you have to give them the story, and then in a way you have to just listen and get out of their way and mm-hmm. give the, let them give you enough material back mm-hmm. so that when I'm back in the editing room months from now, I have what I needed. Mm-hmm. They gave it to me. I didn't do any of that. They, they did it. The set designers built sets and the actors interpreted in the, uh, the gaffers and the grips and the crew made it so and it was lit so and all this, the, the prop people and all the creation that goes on and it's an enormous amount of creation that goes on to take these words that I write down and make them filmable. Yes. And so... By architecture, really what I'm trying to share in a way is here's what we're doing, here's the shape of it. This is what the building's going to look like. Some people are going to come in and want to put pink shag carpeting down Mm -hmm. that I hate, and I'll say no to the pink shag carpeting, Mm -hmm. and I'll say no, I'd rather be, you know, this, whatever, more different tones or different colors. But no matter what I say, they're still going to do it their way, even within the confines of me saying no to the pink shag, right? They're going to find something that's there. They can't be mean. They have to have an ownership of something. 100% ownership. Mm -hmm. They can only respond to me like I respond to them. Mm -hmm. So I've more and more come to see that my job is to sweat the scripts enormously and then to fall in love with whatever has come back to me in the dailies. This was what I found so moving because I had the chance to go to your last rap party and I saw the amount of respect that you had for people of, you know, and from all parts of the show. And uh, I just thought it was, it was so um, egalitarian and so, and I can see how this would really bring the best out of oh, yeah. And also, I mean, you, sh- you shared a script with me. I think you also share them with other I, people. Yes. I, anybody who wants to be involved in the creative process with me is, is welcome. Yeah, I think that's beautiful because I heard other people have the, they, 
lock it down and... Yes. I think people lock it down because they're afraid of criticism. Right. Or they're afraid they're going to be told no right. about something. I know a lot of people who withhold their scripts to the very last minute in order to not let other people um, change anything. Yeah, I mean, and some of that work is really wonderful. I don't want to operate out of that kind of fear. Right. Because you said that you like rehearsals. You don't want to surprise them completely with... I want to get the best from the people. You know, I get one crack, like all of us. I don't... What I write for film and for television is is never going to be done again. Mm. It's not like when I write a play that I write for perpetuity. Mm -hmm. And it can be done by dozens of different actors in dozens of different cities and all around the world, whatever, and they will honor the text that I wrote mm-hmm. because it was built for that. Mm-hmm. This is built for one actor at a time. It's right. built for Liev, it's built for John, it's built for Eddie, it's built for Dash, it's built for Karis, it's built for Pooch, it's built for Sandy. I'm writing directly to them. Mm-hmm. And they in turn have to give me their best. Even if I don't agree with what they want to do and they don't agree with what I'm imposing upon them, somewhere in the middle we have to meet. How do you, may I ask, how do you present the stories to these different actors that you mentioned? It's like, it's you rip a Mm band-aid. The truth is that every time I put a script out, it's, I'm not expecting it to be met with uh, joy. In, mm-hmm. in gratitude. I'm expecting it to be met with challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, great actors have to find themselves inside of everything. And initially, I think most actors don't see themselves inside of what you send them mm-hmm. on their first read. They read through and they go, fuck that. It's an imposition. Oh. <laughs> um, my experience. Other writers may have it. Again, every, every writer has a different experience. I've rarely worked with actors who have been simply uh, conduits of my words. But it's you like that, as I, I understand. I love it. That I they react strongly. It. I prefer it. Mm-hmm. I prefer it. It's painful. Mm-hmm. It's not for the faint of heart because it means that I have to deal with their insecurities and deal with their uh, frustration with me mm-hmm. and deal with their desire to recreate and re- recast what I've written. Mm-hmm. And that process is really grueling. Mm-hmm. However, that process yields something greater than what I wrote. Writing literature is not writing actable drama. And somewhere between the idea that I had and the thing that we can do is a marriage of where an actor needs to pull it into their heart and their, their being and play the moments um, that are mysterious to both of us in the script. I'll put a script out and I, I will see, it's, it's, I have a vision, I see this is how I want it to be, right? And that's not necessarily the way they want to do it or can do it. And so thus begins the negotiation, right? Mm-hmm. That's why I love to direct, because I'm right at the heart of the negotiation. Mm-hmm. I'm right, there's only me, the script that I wrote, the actor, and we're negotiating. 
we're negotiating um, their truth and my desire to form a narrative and my expectations versus their realities, my fantasies versus their abilities. In the sense, that I'm not saying their abilities are not up to the task. I think a lot of writers are like, well, they just couldn't do what I wrote, and they get upset. The truth is, you all, one should always root for their actor to be great. Mm-hmm. One should always root for the performance of the person in front of the camera, not for the words they wrote. Very different things. Yes, I think it also surprised me, you discussed before, and I think that you don't mean it exactly, but that you didn't care about the language. I don't necessarily care mm-hmm. about the language, about the dialogue, if you will. I care about the language of the narrative, mm-hmm. the different things. And, and I, I, I think this is a, it's a knowable and an explainable thing. The language of the narrative is not the dialogue. Mm-hmm. The language of the narrative is the story. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the architecture of the story. It's the feeling state of the story. It's the way the story is being told. And the language that the characters use to relate to one another with mm-hmm. words. Dialogue is just an instrument, right? It's not mm-hmm. the thing. Dialogue is a way to put people in scenes. But the scene is, for my writing at least, this, if the scene turns on a word... I've not done my job. It's, it's not. It's just a word. Mm-hmm. Then it's me trying to get some a word out of you, and you tell me a word, right? And I go, got it, thank you, let's move on. What am I really trying to get from a word? Mm-hmm. Nothing. I mean, there's no word that unlocks anything. It's just a, it's a way to stay in a, a world of intention. It's a symbol, yes. Right, and so language to me is not the thing that draws me to writing speakable, actable languages. But the scripts that I write aren't about poetry. They're about what would really be said in that moment. What, what, what would the character want to express? And what are they hiding? Mm-hmm. Combined with the images. And what has music taught you? Everything. About? Everything. Music. Like, I, I honestly, as I grow older in this profession and my work, if I can't feel the musicality of the piece, I can't do the piece. And that's mine. That's what I get to hold dear. Mm-hmm. Because I get to control the way it feels musically, the way it's cadenced. Mm-hmm. Whether the music is literally just the way this, the, the language sounds or the way the scenes are cut, the length of time between the cuts, the cadence of the cuts, the movements. That's all. I feel that. from, the, And I hear a song or I think of a song and then the song sets and that's the show right but you often you are a musician mm-hmm. but but often you don't use your own music in the no the, the music that's inside of the show mm-hmm. that actually is being played or not, not the score I mean I have yeah. an amazing composer Marcelo is a genius and I rely entirely on him to create the figures um, he and I have a beautiful beautiful relationship but like any other person and artist I work with I rely entirely on Marcelo mm-hmm. to his work and then we discuss and we go back and forth um, his musicality is not my musicality my musicality is simply suggesting to him where do you want to go and he surprises me and then the difference between because you write music that's not intended for I'm not, I'm ta- I'm not talking about the metaphor of writing right. as music but right. your own music well, my own music it's, is different it's, it's, it's not it's, intended it's, to be paired with images necessarily no not necessarily I, I'm not a composer per se mm-hmm. uh, maybe maybe in another life 
I will be, but, but right now, um, when I think about the music of a show, I think about how the music elicits a feeling and how I know that the way that music feels will inform the way I tell the story. Several of the episodes of E.R. are literally just named after a song or a lyric. I know that's the song of the story. I know that's what we're going for. That song permeates every element of the writing and permeates the way we shoot it. Um, and the batting average is pretty high that when I write a song into the title, that song's going to work. Right. And if you think about that just as a process point, to be able to predict that the music you put as the title of the script is going to work in the cut mm-hmm. means that you are so devoted to that musicality. Otherwise, the cut won't accept it. Mm-hmm. It will not, it simply will say no. You look at the images and you lay the music in and the, 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 the images will reject the music. It's an interesting thing when you're editing. However, when you pick a piece of music or pick a feeling and you know that's what you're going for, it becomes embodied in the making of it. Right. And so when you lay it in at the end, it actually works. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing phenomenon. Um, and something that, that fuels my work because it's the one thing I get to keep. No one can take that from me. So you, and this is something I don't understand very well. You're cutting to this music. Has it ever been, I mean, so you have a, you also have Marcella, mm-hmm. um, but you're cutting to music that sometimes is read, already been written. Often. And have you ever been disappointed that maybe uh, music is not available or you make sure? I make sure. I make sure. Yes. I make sure. And by the way, musicians have come to love having their music in the show, so I've had the great, yes, the great blessing of having, uh, no one has said no. Yes. No one's said no. They, uh, they will, there are often times that I have to have long conversations with the artists and explain to them what I'm doing, but mm-hmm. no one's said no. And I think that's because of my passion for their work and for how I see that their work is going to be integrated. And I think because we've done so many episodes and the artists see what it means to be part of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's adding to the complexity of their music. I, I think, think yeah. what we do, both with Marcelo's work and my work as someone who know, who drops the music in with the knowledge of how it's going to play, and then I also the, I do all the incidental music. So if Karis is singing a song or there's a song in the show, that's me working on it. That's me working with Karis. Or that's me writing the music underneath it. Or that's me mm-hmm. recording. Um, so every every song that's done live, whether it's Hank Azaria's Funny Band or whatever, that's my band. That's oh. that's the part where we get to have fun and sort of do yeah. the music. Oh. My uh, my son's on the show this year. Oh, wonderful! And he's yes. playing a pop star. <laughs> so you know we wrote him a song and it was really fun mm-hmm. to sort of write the music and record the music and watching him sort of do that has been a kick because it's sort of the perfect marriage of the things that I love which is obviously my son but also the music and what he's bringing to it is kind of cool well, how are your tastes the same and how are they different or how are your aesthetic with your children um, very much the same my, my oldest and I are my oldest is a musician mm-hmm. he's a wonderful musician He's irreverent and brilliant and unique, and I'll play you some of his music. Mm. He's actually, uh, he's, 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 his, his music is extraordinary. Um, and he and I have very similar tastes. We've, been, we've had similar tastes since the, you know, forever. We, we share our, you know, the love of record, record collecting in certain bands and exploring music and playing music. My middle kid loves everything. He's not as 
particular, but he likes, he, he shares our taste as well. Um, that's been a joy. It's been really cool to be able to share that with them. It's interesting when your kids become artists. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost, it's not that the art is yours, but the extension of it feels, you feel, you feel very much um, a connection I didn't expect to see as my, as my two boys have gone into the arts and, and, and begin to follow their own roads. And, and I see so much of our lives represented now in, in their work. And it's almost, almost more interesting to me than my own, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Well, you can appreciate, sometimes it's hard to stand back from what you've done, even though you can see it externally. Right. I never expected them to be artists, so that's been really an interesting thing. Like, it's been such a, a wonderful surprise to me mm-hmm. that they've, um, it's, you know, it's a hard road, but that they've chosen to undertake that path and that they love what they do and are so good at it has been really mm-hmm. a pleasure. Well, I think that being able to see you work incredibly hard successfully and to be surrounded, I think that it's a, it makes it, it's inspiring, of course. Um, and you obviously invited them into, you know, you welcomed their pursuits. Very much, um, yeah. So what did you want them to know? Perhaps what you hadn't been told because you had to find your, your own way, right? Right. I, I want... Uh, you know, I think we talked about this a little bit last time. I, I feel the same way about my kids experiencing their work as I do about my collaborators. Like, every day I want them to have autonomy. I want them to explore whatever that feels like their truth is in the, in, the, in the moment. I want them to understand that no one's judgment, no one's opinion matters. Mm-hmm. But that hard work being open to criticism, being open to it. It's the only road to success. Mm-hmm. You have to take in, you know, the thing in the Bible where, you know, the idea being is that we sharpen each other. Mm-hmm. We, we rub against one another and we sharpen one another. And, mm-hmm. and that's where the really great work comes as human beings is that we, there is no singular voice. This doesn't exist. It's not true. It's always it's always a, a, the friction of collaboration that gets us to where we're going. That's what drew you to theater and then television 100%. film, yeah. as opposed to you couldn't imagine writing novels. Or <laughs> no, and I also think that the, the, I, w- I, I would love to be a novelist. I just think that it's... Um, I, I, I do believe that, that the, the relationship to other people is the thing that makes something beautiful. Mm-hmm. I love to read, read everything. Um, and I often can see in many writers' work, in fact, they are. They, everyone has somebody that they're working uh-huh. with. There's not a writer out there that didn't have a muse or a friend or a spouse or an editor or somebody that was challenging them and pushing them and demanding of them to go deeper and try harder and yes. to reinvent or, or inspect the work in a way that they hadn't expected to when they first started out. No one, no one is any good if they're, if they're told they're good. Right, or they imagined. I, I don't know. It's it's mysterious because I don't know how that works. Because I've of course had many mentor writers, and um, well, I'm sure you've said I mean, you've spoken to so many of them um, that are of enormous talent, and I would guess that almost every one of them has a foundational relationship to an editor, a friend, a group, a subset. Yes, or some of them even like Richard Ford. Um, who reads his and his novels? I think 
um, out loud to his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also he is dyslexic too, so I think he has to catch things as well. But I think it adds to the orality. Um, and and then we had a mutual friend, uh, Rick Moody, who yeah. adapted sure. personal effects. Right. Um, I didn't mean to go into the tangent, but the difference between directing for for film mm-hmm. and I guess you said before you feel you have more at home in, in writing for television. Or yeah, I, I think I'm a better television writer than I am a feature film writer. Um, I find films to be. Um, I wanted them to be an easier language for me, but they're not. Um, I think it's the brevity of the the, the story that mm-hmm. I struggle with the most. It's the it's the it's how to choose the right unity and really stay within it for this one off, this one chance to tell this one story in this, you know, this 110 minute form. I, I find that really challenging. Mm-hmm. I like writing movies for other people. I like rewriting movies that, that I don't have a hard time doing. But I don't really, I, as I've seen my career evolve, it's never been my happiest and easiest place in writing movies. The television has always been where I, where I discovered that I was most um, capable and most comfortable. Television does feel a bit more like life in that well, there are endings, but there are many endings. I would like to talk about education and how you might envisage, uh, you know, a better school for someone who would, um, mm-hmm. the, you, you could um, yeah, uh, would speak a, to you. Yeah. It's a wonderful question, and I think that we should all be thinking about that. I mm-hmm. think that um, ultimately, I think that we, we are beginning to, at least in the United States, we're, we're beginning to, to rob um, our children of the experience of learning how they learn and learning um, who they are through learning. I think we are, we've put them under such pressure to succeed um, and to aim for something that's not particularly valuable, college per se. Mm-hmm. Everyone goes to college, so why is college special? Mm-hmm. I don't understand why what makes college such an important part of the American dream at this point when the liberal arts education is extraordinarily expensive generally not particularly driving these people to vocational places and frankly not even considered a vocational degree once they're done Mm -hmm. so so much pressure in, in getting a sweatshirt that says princeton on it or yale or northwestern or and consequently, every decision they make in their academic careers in high school become them as devotees to that outcome, to that product. Mm-hmm. A grade is supposed to actually learning that discipline. Yeah, hundred percent. It's, it's how do you get all? How do you do so well that the you get to the place you want to get and compete with others in a way that's foundationally going to make you win the competition, the competition of learning. Mm-hmm. Now I'm an artist, so again I look at it very differently. I'm sure people that. Our lawyers or doctors would debate this with me, but I, I've seen, you know, I've raised three children. I've raised three children going to the, one of the top high, sent them to one of the top high schools in, in the country. Um, I've watched my three kids go through this extraordinarily ambitious school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen firsthand three very different human beings have three very different experiences and realizing that the most valuable experience from my perspective, my oldest straight A's, great athlete, great test scores, he can go anywhere he wanted, no problem. 
He never learned rejection, though. Mm-hmm. Right? He never learned those things. He learned how to gin the system and to win. Mm-hmm. But rejection was not given to him. Because to fail in high school is to lose the optionality mm-hmm. of Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Northwestern, wherever, right? Those mm-hmm. options are taken away. My middle son knew by the time he was a halfway through his freshman year that he would never attend any of those schools because his grades were already not going to get him there. He'd already had the C's. He'd already had the bad grades. Mm-hmm. It was over before it began, right? Mm-hmm. He failed nonstop. He was rejected all the time. And now he understands that rejection is not a death blow, and he can live in a world where rejection doesn't stop him cold in his tracks. In, in the way, as you suggest, it's a good preparation for being an artist. For anything. Yeah. For being a human being. Yeah. Um, I'm not suggesting my oldest is not an incredibly talented and adaptable and unique human being with all sorts of skills. I am suggesting that my oldest never learned what my middle learned. Mm-hmm. And that this the skill set that my middle child is going out of, who graduated at the bottom of his class, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He's so prepared for the world, mm-hmm. ironically. He's so prepared because he, 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 luckily, he found a passion and he found something he was good at. And that coalesced the thing that he loves, his ability to manage rejection and then bounce back. Mm-hmm. His ability to look at what, what look at rejection for what it is, which is not failure. Mm-hmm. It's not failure. It's just not getting what you wanted at the time that you wanted it. Mm-hmm. That's okay, right? Well, what you're saying that you enjoy the conflict, you get more out of conflict. You said that with your scriptures, your actors. Mm-hmm. So having that makes something stronger, and it is an interesting lesson to learn. And I think that if we can mm-hmm. give our children environments where they can fall in love with things, pursue them to their utmost, get their hearts broken, and still come back. Mm-hmm. That's the gift of an education. Mm-hmm. Teaching them how to, sure, you want to learn math, absolutely learn it. Mm-hmm. You, know, be, you know, all those things are wonderful, and I'm, I, I loved math. I still love math. I mean, there are things that are, they're valuable, but however, where are you going, really? What do you want to do? What do you love? Mm-hmm. It is an option. We, we, we live in a culture where, where I think we're allowed to say to our, our students, whether they're from upper echelons economically or from, from relative poverty, they're allowed to love what they do, and they should. Mm. Yeah, it's actually a sad world to think that if you love it, it what you're saying, that if you love something, then it must be superfluous or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just not the case. It's, it's, it's quite the opposite. It's the thing that I think has created the, the most numbing element of, of where the culture goes is that people are not given the freedom to really go after the things they love and learn the way they learn. Yeah. You know, um, yes, because we all learn differently. Right. Um, and it is interesting because I think the previous education models and I I see this is, of course, being adapted. I know we went to Northwestern, we had a great experience there. Um, but in the past, we were, in a sense, um, educated to behave a little like machines or efficiently. Mm-hmm. And if you're, and now we have machines who can 
behave like machines. Right. So why? Why <laughs> do that? Exactly. Yes. There's no. There's no. There's no possible job mm-hmm. left that would behave in that way. It's either all creative mm-hmm. or all entrepreneurial or somewhere in that kind of messy mixed place. Mm-hmm. We're all in a situation where we have to create our realities then. Mm-hmm. And the realities of others are not as easily, we're not, we're not as, as useful to the realities of others as we once were as a culture because of the automation that's become I want to make something, it gets automated. Mm-hmm. Only in the arts. That's why I love doing what I'm doing. I mean, I will always need the 150 people that work with me. I can't automate any of them alone. And thank God, they're all valuable to me because there's no one that can do what they do. Um, and I think in, in any person who's being an entrepreneur, that's the case because they're creating something from whole cloth that's a human experience. It doesn't exist. So you have to make it handmade. And uh, that's where people are most useful. You know? And where they should be. They should be in positions where they're, they're creating something and not just about being, you know, that's where I think our spirits get broken and where we, we, we cease being curious. We cease being alive. You know? um, and that does begin with our education system. Mm-hmm. They're, taught, they're taught to not be curious. Mm. It's strange that we need permission because that's the permission to fail. But go over here, and then suddenly you're unruly. Go over here, and you're not listening to me, right? I'm trying to teach you this in between these lines, and you're over here, and you're over here. How dare you, mm. right? Whereas the model should be find. I'm trying to teach you something, mm. or maybe you could teach me something as along well. the way. Mm-hmm. And so this rote need to wrangle people and control them through methodologies that are just absolute bullshit of regurgitation, of test-taking, of comparison, of competition, these kind of demons that they shouldn't be battling. Mm-hmm. And I see it firsthand in my own family. I mean, again, I'm watching my middle child succeed so much with such speed. Mm-hmm. And it was my experience, too. Yeah. I was not a good student. I did not like school. Um, and yet, I am the most quote-unquote successful member of my family. Mm. They were great students. I'm not saying they don't love what they do. I'm not more successful than my brother in any way, shape, or form. He's extraordinarily successful mm. in what he does, and he's created an extraordinary thing. But I understand what you're saying. What I what I what I'm more saying is that I have I have environments and spaces or economics that have that are far different mm-hmm. because I never limited myself. And they're yeah, they're quite very competitive. Yeah. I guess the limitations of not having a place already set out for you, you have to and I th- I really believe imagination is intelligence. You have to make that place right. for yourself. You have to, and I think that we're we are not charging our culture. We are not charging the culture, or the, the academic culture, or the, or the way that we are serving our children. No one's asking them who they want to be. Mm-hmm. No one's saying, who are you, really? They're starting to take it upon themselves. Like I, we had my son and his girlfriend and a bunch of kids were over last night to watch the fireworks, but dozens between the ages of 15 and 21. Mm-hmm. 
and listening to them is just so amazing because they're not they're not stuck mm. they're not stuck in identities they're not stuck in gender they're not stuck in they're not they're very much finding their way so you would have liked to have been born later into mm. this period are you sure because no. it's kind of frightening to no, me. <laughs> I'm happy with I was I'm happy to be where I am today I, I, I think we all should be I think that I was super fortunate that I was not no one knocked me off my, my horse no one made me stop mm. and I didn't make myself stop yeah so I was very very lucky and, and uh, I wouldn't trade my, my experience for the world it's, it's, it's I also see that my experience is over time going to be less and less relevant Mm-hmm. As an artist, I don't expect me to be a relevant artist forever. That's interesting, and I think yeah, there is a certain kind of pressure of time with, with showrunners. Um, it's something that we might close on. You were talking about going into your next story, talk, which is a historical piece. It's, it's, it's historical only in that its emotions are based, and the stories are based in the past, but it is written present day. But everything in it is about the past. So how do you make it relevant? You're changing the... It's today's language. I don't know whether it's going to work or not, because it's, it's, it's like the design for it is almost to amalgamate the present and the past, to make it almost like as you're watching, you're not sure what overlaps. Is this now? Is it then? Did it's you been... ever feel you were born in the wrong time then? No. No. It's but been... what speaks to you about these times? Well, the times that I'm writing about in my own lifetime, I'm writing about the 70s, really. Mm-hmm. I'm just okay. writing about the 70s and transposing it into the 2020. Okay. Okay, but that it is fun writing about, I mean, the, the, the look of things. And as right. I think also of Ray Donovan, that's a present-day story, but it's also sort of very overlaid. Very backward-looking, very rooted yes. in history in the past. And I, th- I think what I do write about are people that, that are very... Um, that replay their childhoods mm. a lot in their minds. They, they're, uh, I'm working with an actress on uh, another show that I'm doing, and she's a she's a very very famous actress and, and the movie star. But you know now she's in her sixties, and, and we were working the other day, and she said something that was really uncanny and true. Mm. She said, you know, it'd be really interesting to me if you stop writing about the past, about your past, why don't you write about now? And I was like, that's a really good challenge. My characters are so backward looking. Mm. I'm so comfortable looking backward. Mm. And I thought that was a really like, exciting idea. Like, okay. You were successful early on. Right. So you're always looking back to a moment where you had these intense experiences. I'm always looking for where my, I'm sure you feel the same way when you're doing your art. I can lose myself. Whatever we call the muse or whatever we call the thing that creates within us mm-hmm. is available to us. Yes. What state we have to be in to find that. And that, that state itself can be um, almost a pathology, right? Almost like mm-hmm. a consistent pathology. So it's, it's how do we access our, our creativity becomes almost, a, almost like the, a, a pathological behavior, mm-hmm. right? So for you, how do you paint or how do you dance or why do you, why you choose to sort of look deeply into the, the creative processes of other writers? Mm-hmm. 
that must touch something that is pathologically there all the time for the reaching for. I write out of a kind of a backward looking thing. And now that I'm in my, you know, 51 years old and I'm thinking, okay, I've been writing this way for 25 mm. years. What would happen if I tried a new... I, I say that only... But writing your present would be writing about a showrunner. Yes. Which people are curious about. Writing my present would be writing about a showrunner or writing about a 51-year-old father of three. Mm. Oh, excuse me, I didn't mean to define you that way. You know, no, 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 so I'm saying it, like, that's true. That's my job, but also my life experience. Mm -hmm. Who am I today? Yes. Who am I today versus who was I? And I think that's the only way I can... I need to make that change for myself, and it's the only way I'll be able to remain relevant as an artist. Sometimes you write comedy. Mm -hmm. I mean, but let's say it's been a lot of drama, mm -hmm. but it has comic elements, I think, mm -hmm. that are wonderful. But would you consider stepping into that? 100%. Yeah, I love writing comedy, and I, I would I would consider stepping into that. I would consider stepping into writing a much less um, much less subtextual, dense, brooding piece. Mm -hmm. I would be very interested in writing the modern story. Mm -hmm. I think that's what I'm what, what I'm thinking about now as I'm finishing Ray Donovan and finishing these sort of decades of this kind of work, and it's. It's brought me to a place in my career where, where I've received a lot of lovely things from it, but mm -hmm. it's given me the constant work. It's economically been extremely rewarding. It's allowed me to be in constant collaboration. And yet, it's got to be something different to do. You know, I have to do something different now. <laughs> well, it seems that you, you have many projects, but I don't want to put an, yet another expectation no, to right. write your present. But... Um, Thank you, uh, David Hollander, Absolutely. for all the stories you have given us, this, uh, this wonderful, complex range of characters, these dramas uh, also filled with moments of, of light and hope and uh, not all dark visions. It's, it's, it's a beautiful uh, body of work. Uh, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviewer and producer on this podcast was Allison Bevany and Brett Young. Assignment editor is Cyrilla Lark. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anandolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.